0: I mean, I think that the main thing that keeps me going, I think, spiritually is one, knowing that like my interest or passion from these things actually comes from the Lord, right? Like that God is actually the one who is the God of the foreigner and of the fatherless and of the oppressed and seeing that, you know, seeing him be that in my life, but also seeing like, and getting a sense of his heart, like that God cares about all of these issues and these people way more than I ever can and and that he is at work even over the last few years and how challenging that was like god is still at work and and i really appreciate M- millie's reminder that like he is sovereign and above all of these systems um and is still working even in the brokenness
1: I need to know.
2: welcome to shake the dust leaving colonized faith for the kingdom of god a podcast of ktf press i'm Susie lahoud here with jonathan walton and cy Hookstra.
1: today we have an interview with millie kihei and gabrielle Apollon. millie is an educator a spiritual advisor a mentor and a dreamer she serves as a pastor at the church reconcile brooklyn and is the founder of a ministry called hoping greatly where she focuses on uplifting others by telling her story Uh, of being an undocumented immigrant. She holds degrees from Nyack College and Hunter College, as well as a certificate from the City Seminary of New York. Now, Gabrielle works at the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at NYU Law, where she is a director on the project for human rights in Haiti's emerging mining sector and a supervisor on the project for torture, rendition, and detention. She previously served as managing attorney at The Door, a center for alternatives, where she represented undocumented young people in immigration and family law matters. She got her JD at NYU Law, and she also has both a bachelor's and a master's of international affairs from Columbia University. And in addition to all those things, Gabrielle is also my wife. So Jonathan, uh, just because of a scheduling conflict, couldn't make this interview. But Susie and I talked to Millie and Gabrielle about their experiences growing up undocumented in the United States. The decisions of many immigration advocates, including Millie, who choose to disclose their immigration status publicly while they are still undocumented. Gabrielle's recent article on the racist origins of the immigration system, solidarity between black and brown communities and a lot more. And, of course, we have a link to Gabrielle's article in the show notes if you want to read that and get more of a context for what we're talking about. One last thing, and then I will be quiet. Um, there was a little bit of a problem with Millie's mic on this episode. She was a little bit quiet, and uh, there were some kind of strange noises that the mic was making at a couple of points, but uh, it's still completely listenable, and uh, this is just such a great conversation. We obviously wanted you all to hear it. Uh, we know what the problem is. It's not going to happen again. I just wanted that to, uh, to flag that for all of you. Thanks. Thank y'all so much for tuning into the podcast today. The best way to support the show is to go to ktfpress.com and subscribe. That gets you our weekly newsletter on resources to help you leave colonized faith for the kingdom of God, bonus episodes of this show, and writing from the three of us. It also supports other projects like future books that we're working on. If you aren't in a position to sign up, make sure you hit subscribe or follow on your podcast player. Follow us at KTF Press on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And please do tell your friends about us. We'd love to hear from you. So take a moment to send an email to shakethedust at ktfpress.com with any questions you might have, comments on the show, or even a voice memo with a question you might have for us. And you may show up on a future episode.
2: Now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. Here's our interview with Millie and Gabrielle.
1: Billy and Gabrielle, welcome to Shake the Dust. Thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: Um, so we have we don't have Jonathan, but we still have a bit of a full house here. Um, but let me, let's just get us started by introducing the two of you and your stories a little bit to the listeners. Could you just give us a brief kind of summary of what it was like for the two of you growing up undocumented in the U.S.? And let's start with... Millie, since you've already written about this for KTF Press in the uh, the article that you had in our anthology,
3: I would say it it was tough. It was tough. I didn't even know I was undocumented until when? Until the moment that I went to high school um, and I was applying for college, you know, in New York. So I'll never forget, you know, going all nice and dandy to my guidance counselor. Um, I was definitely that you know, student always trying to make sure I had every credit, everything there, submitted my application for CUNY. And there she's like, hey, so you're missing your social security number. Do you have it? And I was like, I don't know, but I'm going to ask my mom. So I went to my mom and that's where she sat me down. She's like, so about that, you know? And um, and that's where I, I knew um, my story of, yes, that I was different. Did not know exactly what that meant, right for for college and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, from there and on was, I would say, the beginning of a, a journey of for me to assimilate that I was undocumented. But then to know what does that look like to actually provide for everything, all my schooling um, from scratch, you know. So, so yeah, I, it, that was the moment in that high school office with my guidance counselor.
1: How did you then get through? College to where you are today Mm because you, you, I mean, you went to college. So, what happened
3: when it came to applications? Um, I was encouraged to still apply to college because that's one thing I was thinking about not doing because of knowing this is going to be different for me, I'm not sure how that's going to go. But thankfully, I had the support of my faith community, and also, you know, my family, of course, are always pro as the first generation. Latina that I am, you know, or pro-education. Um, so I, yeah, I had to take, you know, at basically out of the books, jobs, you know, babysitting, tutoring, you name it. Sometimes I had to take two or three jobs um, at a time at a semester in order to provide for my tuition, for my books, and had to just provide for everything for me. Um, And I really have to say, I think my my greatest moment was coming across Campus Ministry InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, where I met other college-age students and had a wonderful, wonderful staff worker who just believed in me and loved in me. And she's the first one outside of my community, Latin American community, Pentecostal Church, and my family that was able to release my news. Since she always believed in my leadership and was just so avid and like Millie you should go to this conference and it was over over like not in New York and for me that's that was a trouble because I had no documents I can't travel via plane and that's where I remember releasing my story with so much shame and guilt because I didn't want her to look at me differently
1: Mm. um thank you very much for sharing that Gabrielle can you give us give us a little bit of your story
0: Sure. Um, and I was actually, Millie, after reading your your essay, I thought that, you know, we, we would have like quite different stories in terms of this. But actually, I think a lot of what you said really resonated. Um, so I became, <laughs> I was going to say I became undocumented, but I didn't really fully understand this either um, until later on, because um, my family is from Canada and uh, originally from Haiti. I grew up in Kansas City. Um, there were not that many other immigrants around when I grew up or where I grew up, um, in Olathe and Overland Park specifically. Um, but, uh, we actually kind of went in and out of status, which I think, um, is not something people usually think about when they think of, um, people who are undocumented. It's actually can be quite fluid sometimes. And, and so for me, I didn't necessarily understand what our statuses were, um, for the majority of my, um, childhood in Kansas City. And again, similar to Millie, it wasn't until I, you know, when push came to shove, when I had to figure out how to get into college, and specifically who was going to pay for college, um, that, that it really hit home. Um, and before that, I would say, you know, looking back, I think that um, the biggest impact that, that being undocumented had um, for my family was, was poverty. As a result of that, when I was applying for college, um, I knew very clearly that unless I got a full ride, I wasn't going to be able to go because there were, there were no resources. I mean, it was hard enough to like find money for rent the next month, let alone, um, college fees. And, and so that really shaped, um, you know, it becoming very, very real very quickly. Um, thankfully I, I ended up by, truly by the grace of God. And I think this is one of those times where I, I really, one of the first times I saw God really provide so powerfully in my life um, was I got a full ride scholarship, which was really the only way I was going to go um, to school. But the other thing that resonated with me that that you shared Millie um, and the other ways that I saw God provide was in the, in the lack of financial resources, our church family really just pulled us through and there were very various church families, but Really, those were the people who were, you know, giving us rides to school and helping us cover rent and bringing groceries when we needed them and stuff. And and then I saw the community and you know God's like financial and and miraculous provision.
2: Yeah, thank you both so much for for sharing and and we're looking forward to digging more into your your experiences and your stories. And Millie, going going back to you specifically, could you tell us? What went into the process of deciding to publicly disclose your undocumented status? And I'll be honest, the, the three of us editors, when you contributed to our anthology, we were kind of shocked and surprised that you were willing to publish, you know, this beautiful essay about your experience of, of being undocumented and your experience with the church and and to put your full name on it. We assumed that you would do that anonymously. And I know that your willingness to publicly disclose that information has also been a huge part of your advocacy. So yeah, if you could just share about that, that process and that decision.
3: It was, uh, I would say it was gradual um, from the moment that I just mentioned um, previously in our last question of me coming out of the shadows to uh, my staff worker of InterVarsity of Hunter College Mm -hmm. and letting her know and just seeing her love for me and how she prayed and cried with me of the injustice that I had had all my life since my mom the way my mom brought me here unfortunately my parents were low resourced in Peru so that's where I'm from and actually around this time they were so traumatized from what was happening but they actually were in a certain time period in Peru called la senda luminosa which basically was a time period where there were kidnapping children but then also oh, my gosh. father yeah he was a uh, great construction work he had his own company he, around the same time he he actually was robbed so for him to see the future was outside of Peru and for the safety of his family so he went forth first and then came my mom but in this time you know we weren't resourced at all so she tried as much to get a lump sum of money in order to find a trusted coyote that's what it's called a person who crosses someone. And, um, and yeah, and she with me in hands, I was three years old, But when we crossed, i I actually um made my birthday. So I crossed in my birthday, um because I'm a August baby, um, and stuff. but long story short, my mom made this decision, you know, and it was very risky, absolutely now knowing the stories that I hear from other like fellow undocumented friends that I've had as well. And I think, when we started hearing as a family about the discrimination and racism, especially with Trump coming to power and hearing his campaign, I would say that's where we had a conversation. I had a conversation with my parents, like, this isn't right. What should we do about it? What are your thoughts? And they were spent because, unfortunately, they have tried to renew um, their, as well, like adjust their status. and. They did it back in two thousand and one, but unfortunately, later on, we found out that it was through a fraudulent agency. It was reported a few years ago, okay. so it we've gone through a lot when it comes to that. So they were spent already around this time a few years ago, and they were like, you know what? They pretty much they were like, we're so done with the system. If you choose to go ahead and share your story, we're okay with it, and they gave me that blessing. But without their blessing to actually be out of the shadows I would not have come out of my story and also I think also them seeing the support of our faith community my mentors just and also friends that are as well advocates and allies of immigrants they saw that strength from carrying me over from undergrad to grad school where I had to as well like grieve an unmet expectation for grad school around um I know I would think it was 2014 or so because the laws, of course, weren't permitting for me to apply for a certain program because that would mean that I would need a licensure with that type of program. And I can't because I'm not a U.S. citizen or resident. So it's things like this that I think my family saw God's favor and also God's provision for our family absolutely in everything that they were open for me to start telling my story. And it was great because I remember I also had my moment, my, I would say my complete poignant out of the shadows moment when I wanted to also well give up from from ministry, give up from seminary in one semester because it was just so much um, of like, I was working. I was, I, I think as well doing um, my field work for seminary and taking the seminary course, I remember, because that was my next, um, I was an urban ministry um, major. And I'll never forget this class because there is where I was taught about a God who sees, who hears those in the margins. And I've never mm-hmm. heard that in my life. I heard it, maybe certain things, but this person just went completely, dived into scripture and saying how there's so many people that have been in the margins, mentioning the story of Esther, how she had to be in the shadows. Um, with her identity but then revealed it for the people mm, and so yeah. for me that's where I was like reading this book too um Liberty to the Captives" by Reverend Dr. Raymond Rivera I cried my eyes out because I knew exactly what God was calling me to do which was to tell my story stop hiding my light underneath and put it back on the hill so from there forward you know with um the counsel of my mentor, um, Maritza Crespel, love her. She's been with me for years.
1: Um, yes. Her and um, in
3: Orlando, I'm, I really believe I am their honorary um, daughter for sure these mm-hmm. past <laughs> few years. And if you know anything about the Crespels, they're absolutely high supporters of um, immigrants and just the Latino community as well. And it gave me strength and gave me courage to continue forward in knowing that even if Trump was elected, which we know he ha- He was, right, um, I can still continue forward with just a wonderful mentors like them and so many others that have come, like Jonathan Walton, too, you know, when I was grieving, you know, from Trump presidency, um, Trump being elected, what does that mean for me? So I think knowing the strength of allies and just people who love me and know my story gave me the courage to continue standing, but also seeing the hurt, On campus. So when Trump got elected, I'll never forget this moment because I was working in administrative role in Hunter College and started seeing in our Facebook group, one of our young girls just came out of the shadows and saying, how do I bridge my faith as a DACA recipient and knowing that people who say yes to Jesus are saying that I should get out of this country. I don't know how to bridge my faith with you know, with this everything going on right now. And it was nice. I saw other students saying, you know, encouraging her, praying for her. But I knew that was it. That was the the kick I needed. And I was like, I know exactly how you feel. And there is where publicly in a Facebook group, um, I came out of with my story and and it's been ever since. And I've seen the more I've I say the story. It's it's been helpful for me too. It's been a great um, healing process of knowing that I'm being able to bridge both, you know, my my story of being in the margins, but also bridging the the hurt and the fear that, unfortunately, were in the rhetoric with Trump of the discrimination and racism of Christians. So it's been awesome to do that as well in certain spaces with um the undocumented community, or I would say the documented community for me as a DACA recipient when they're like, oh my gosh, are all of them racist? Are all of them this? And then I'm like, Hi, you know, my name is this. And guess what? I am a pastor and I'm a doctor recipient. Like, how in the heck did that happen? So it's been so amazing <laughs> being part of those spaces, especially in the last um presidential election where we were all grieving together and like of when is that decision gonna come? How is it gonna happen? But then I'll never forget many doctor recipients talking about their churches that were absolutely filled with immigrants and yet their faith leaders were absolutely advocating for Trump and them trying to just go Mm. through that. And me just speaking to that and saying, I'm so sorry. Not all of them are like that. Guess what? I'm a pastor. I'm doing this. I'm here with you. And so many were like, so sweet and just like saying, how, like, can you tell us more? And it's been awesome to kind of be that person and like saying, yeah, you can bridge both. Um, It's not an anomaly, but I always have to start apologizing all the time when it comes to outside of faith networks, Mm. because people are afraid of Christians.
1: What you just gave us was uh, a lot of the reasons that you, you know, your motivations and the power of your community and the ways that you're thinking about this as a minister, you didn't exactly talk about what a big risk it was for you. Like it, which was, you know, I think part of the, the decision for anybody who's, Who's you know th- there are lots of advocates who have made the same decision that you have to be very public and like to tell people you know as the, as the movement says all the time you're not alone but it's a, it's a seriously enormous risk to yourself and um I don't know if you have anything to say about that but I just wanted to point that out to the to the listeners like this is not a safe decision
3: yeah I think for me it's just knowing God's providence. I, it really is knowing God's protection and oversight, regardless of the risk, and also me being comfortable with uncomfortability and the school of uncertainty. And the reason I say this is all my life has been uncertain, and I never knew it until that moment in the guidance counselor in high school. So I have seen God's amazing ways that he's come through for me. So taking this risk, yes was it like fear filled in the beginning? Absolutely. I feel like I started telling my story afraid. Um but I yeah. definitely have to say that the I see God's just hand in a protection all the time like and I have, you know, been talking about it a lot lately with other colleagues and just talking with other advocates too, who are also in the same, you know, status as I am, who are DACA recipients, and we all are in agreement in saying, like, we rather take this risk and even, you know, be subjected to deportation versus not talking about it at all and people thinking they're alone in this journey, they're alone in their uncertainty, in their fear, in just the rhetoric they hear. And I have to say, the the more risk I've taken the more I've seen God's hand with me. And what gives me hope too is also where God has me. Like I ran away from what I'm doing, right? As a, as a minister and a licensed clergy. But once I said, yes, I have to say that just so many things have lined up in my favor that it's just, it really has been God sent. And also knowing that um, under the Evangelical Covenant Church as a licensed clergy with them, They're high advocates as well for justice and women in leadership has given me as well, I would say, the strength to continue speaking as well. My story knowing that if the worst case scenario happens, I know regardless in this organization, I will definitely find a way to continue doing the work that I believe God has called me for um, as a minister, but then also of being that bridge for faith and justice in my story, no matter where I go. So that's one thing, too, that I've learned to, even though, yes, the system gives me the limits, the fear tactics, right, of being like a bird in a cage or an expansive cage a little bit with DACA, it's also knowing who am I, like, listening to higher than these systems and these principalities of the world. And that's where I've been my aim for with um, my grounding with God. And I have seen that, yes, he is absolutely beyond these cages, beyond these principalities and beyond the risk. And I also know my rights. So that's one thing, too, that I've loved in having this very grassroots way of immigration activism through knowing other DACA recipients and undocumented is the advocacy, but then also their encouragement, especially by one dear friend, just the encouragement of, them always saying, know your own rights too. not only the rights that you're limited here in America, but know your rights too according to your citizenship in your country. So that's one thing that's been also giving me a lot of strength because as a Peruvian citizen, I actually have more (laughs) rights and liberties and am able to travel abroad without a visa for certain European countries that has been new, a new integration of the Peruvian president with the European Union just a few years ago. And, man, I'm like, why am I feeling so limited in this country, right, stuff. And so this is also, too, what gives me the courage is knowing myself and knowing that, yes, there's more beyond America as well for, for me.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, really, I think what you shared about kind of the power in your um, vulnerability and, like, coming out of the shadows I think is – is mirrored actually in like the broader immigration advocacy space, because I think that what we've seen um, happen over the last, you know, 10, maybe 15 years around DACA um, and the, the realization that um, young people um, who, you know, similar near situation who have had no, um, who had no choice in the matter should get, you know, (laughs) rights, shockingly um, in this country, and get some relief from deportation that actually all came about from um daca recipients themselves deciding to come out even against the advice of their immigration lawyers <laughs> like i used to be um and and everyone who who knew the risks that that could have but actually almost all of the um the policy movement came from um young people coming out and saying like no this is this is what we want. This is what we should have. And I don't know, I'm, I'm just struck by that, that that has, that it's not just an individual story. It's actually um, part of the movement. And I think that that's so important. And I recognize, I feel like I need to also recognize that, you know, for me as a formerly undocumented person, it is a bit, you know, safer for me to, to talk about this history and stuff. But there are so many people like you who have said, you know, regardless of, of what's happening, kind of on the policy or the legal front, like I'm going to share my story. I'm going to share, um, you know, what I deserve and 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 advocate for that. And I, I just think that's so important.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and thank you so much for for making that connection, Gabrielle. And thank you again, Millie, for sharing. I'm just so struck by as Sai pointed out, the courage that went into that decision, and then also the the care in the sense that it was very much a communal decision. You know, the fact that it, it impacted your immediate community, your family, and you sort of needed to seek their blessing and their consent. And, and I appreciate that so much. And then the fact that you sort of made this decision for your community, the broader community that you're in. And so it was really sort of sacrificial in that sense. And going back to your essay in, in our anthology, keeping the faith, Millie, you, you, talk about the anti-blackness that sometimes manifests in the immigration rights movement itself. And Gabrielle, if we could just pivot back to you, could you explain a little bit about what that looks like and and what people can do to help the movement do better?
0: Well, I think that um, as as an immigration lawyer, I, I was practicing for about f- five years um, prior to, to my current role. Um, You know, I'm, as I mentioned before, I'm Haitian Canadian. Um, and, and due to my language experience, due to my interests, like a lot of my clients were either Haitian or, or French speaking from West Africa. And, you know, I, that was what I, what I discovered was it, it was relatively rare, even in a city like New York, um, which is super diverse. And as I, you know, kept trying to advocate for my clients, kept trying to advocate for language access, um, and, and highlighting kind of the, the challenges that black immigrants had, I often felt like a broken record. I often was like, how am I the only one mentioning French and like the need for things to be translated in French and Creole? Or how, how is this just what I do in every meeting? <laughs> and, and I look around and, and very few other people are doing it. And so I started to, you know, maybe be a little self-conscious. Like, oh, I guess I'm going to make this comment again. I guess I'm going <laughs> to say this. Um, repeatedly. And I was like, maybe I'm just like overthinking this, like maybe I'm, I'm being a little too extra. Um, and then last summer hit um, <laughs> and more people started talking about um, racial justice and the aftermath of, of George Floyd's murder. Um, and what I discovered, and that was the first time for in like almost all of the immigration advocacy and, and legal services spaces that I was in, where we started, I started hearing people talk about Black immigrants. And I was like, huh. <laughs> so mm-hmm. this is actually, it wasn't just in my head, right? Like people were realizing and thinking about it and therefore um, proactively starting. And I, I un- emphasize the word starting to, to think about how their their programs and how their um, advocacy may uh, be overlooking or erasing certain immigrants. And I think that if I was to probably try to summarize, it would be, there is an erasure and an overlooking of Black immigrants within the mainstream narratives of, of immigration and, and what it means to be an immigrant. I think most of the time, we we often only think about Latino immigrants, we often only think about Spanish as, as um, a language of, of immigrants or of immigration. Um, and that's just very much not the case, right? Especially in a city like New York, but but across, across the nation. Um, and so, you know, there, there, there are obviously like very real um, problems within our whole immigration system. Um, you know, black immigrants, just like in the criminal justice system, are often the ones that feel the full weight of the criminalization and the draconian policies that our immigration system has. Um, however, though that that um, story is often um, not told. And so um, I think that the immigrant narratives that not just in the immigration system, but within the movement themselves, I think we have to be honest about the fact that anti-blackness is actually not just an American thing. Unfortunately, it is a global phenomenon and there's lots of anti-blackness in Latin America um, and, um, you know, across the world. But um, that that bias, whether implicit or not, does come with people. You know, it does cross borders. And so unfortunately I think that that bias is within our movements of advocates it's within our movements of of activists as well and I think unless we address it um, head-on you know and there are some organizations that have been created to address this issue like undocu black baji Black Alliance for just immigration I think we need those organizations to Haitian bridge Alliance to bring these things to the forefront but most importantly, we also need like the main organizations with most of the resources to, to really kind of reflect and look in, inward and think, how are we perpetuating these, um, anti-Black, um, anti-Black rhetoric, anti-Black narratives as well? I will say that, you know, that translates into resources, right? Because if people mm-hmm. aren't thinking about Black immigrants, then they're not thinking about hiring people who speak the languages that Black immigrants often speak, whether it be um, you know, French or Creole or other um, languages that, that people speak in Africa, um, that's one thing. But then you also have like funders, right? Are funders looking at the types of immigration um, relief that a lot of um, Black immigrants, you know, need, um, you know, in, you know, recently temporary protected status, which is a, a form of temporary immigration relief was just granted for Haiti. And one of my big concerns is, you know, there, there are potentially about 150,000 Haitians who will be eligible um, to get this relief. But are they going to find the, the legal service providers um, to help them with those with those types of cases? I don't know. <laughs> and I, I hope so. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, there need to be resources towards that, whether private, public, et cetera.
1: So Gabrielle, you recently wrote an article that we will link to in the show notes about the the anti-Blackness and specifically the anti-Haitian prejudice that is sort of at the foundation of the current mass immigration detention system. Can you explain a little bit about that history?
0: Sure. Um, And I will say and (laughs) share a story. Um, It's actually, unfortunately, the entire immigration system that, you know, is is based on white supremacy, sadly, Um, and. that, you know, that could be a whole, <laughs> a whole class in and of itself. I will say I did, um, I taught like a a little seminar to uh, eighth and ninth graders about, um, about immigration. And I was like, okay, what's like one thing I really want them to, to know. And I guess that's what I decided on that. Like, actually the whole system, unfortunately is, is founded on, on a pretty, um, Pretty troubling and white supremacist uh, foundation. And, and so I shared about, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act and some of these first cases, immigration cases that were all about, like, how white are you? And that will determine, you know, if you're considered white, then you can immigrate. If you're not, then, you mm-hmm. know, it sucks for you. Um, and, and so I did this whole spiel. I like went through kind of uh, the long kind of timeline of this. And then at the end, First off, I just love New York City kids because they will keep it real um, all the time. This one of the girls raised her hands. She was like, "So, is your whole point that the whole system's racist? <laughs> like, like, duh. Obviously, we know this." And I was like, "Ah, yes, okay. New York City teenagers do not need to be reminded of <laughs> the racism of the system." Um, right. And yeah. so that was that was a very good humbling reminder of the reality of our city uh, <laughs> and this country, but. I will say just to speak to the, the immigration detention um, system. So the system that we know, you know, is is very recent. So actually having so many um, so many people in immigration detention, which is prison, right? It is the same facilities. Um, you've literally
1: the same literally buildings. Literally the
0: same buildings that function as jails are also the ones that we, for some reason, seem to also believe that um, people who whose only crime is being an immigrant um, and trying to, uh, you know, get a better life or la vie meilleure, as as we say in Creole. um, That that should be should be treated horribly, and you know, not to mention all of the problems that we already have in a criminal justice in our criminal justice system. But that system is very is very new, and it was actually not until the the seventies when Haitians were um, fleeing a a brutal dictatorship um, that. Um, Haitians started coming en masse in, you know, some people have pro- probably seen images of, of what they call boat people, people traveling in extremely dangerous um, um, boats that, that weren't meant for that, but because they were fleeing um, atrocities. Right. Um, but when they when they arrived on these shores, they. Um, our this this nation's um administration at the time um was primarily focused on how do we stop the, the these this influx and their um the way they decided to handle that was let's make detention mandatory so it used to be um usually only in exceptional circumstances that we would detain immigrants or imprison them and they actually made it um the blanket kind of rule and at, at for certain times didn't even allow bond um in an effort to quote deter, uh, deter more immigrants, and that's actually that was the genesis of the system we have now.
1: I should just note, bond is the immigration system's equivalent of bail in the criminal justice system. Exactly.
0: And you know, this is a time where there were there were lots of Cuban refugees also fleeing, right? Um, but they were actually, in most cases, not not treated in the same way, not detained mandatorily. Um, and then you have in the '90s where a lot of people don't know. Prior to what Guantanamo is now, actually, um, Haitians were, were detained, intercepted in the shores and detained on Guantanamo in, in 1990. Um, and, and so for me, that's like a very <laughs> a visceral just reality of what we are willing to do to, to Black immigrants um, that, that actually continues on to this day. So to this day, Black immigrants um, spend more time in solitary confinement um, in immigration detention, um, while only 7% of, of non-citizens in the U.S. are Black, Black immigrants represent 20% of, of people facing deportation on, on criminal grounds. And there are a lot of other examples where, as I mentioned before, Black immigrants bear the brunt of, um, the terrible ways that we treat not just immigrants, but people, um, in the criminal justice system as well. So that's a little bit of the overview. There's so much more, obviously. Um, but yeah.
1: Just one thing I want to highlight from your article is the fact that at first they started applying this mandatory detention to Haitians only. Mm -hmm. And then when a lawsuit was brought, right, this is how it Mm worked. When a lawsuit was brought, alleging that that was discrimination, the the Reagan administration said, oh, okay, well, then we'll do it to everyone. Yeah. And like, that's how it started, right? It's like, if we can't be be discriminatory about this, then we're just going to do it to everybody.
0: And actually, so I, I just had a thought and Millie, I just appreciated um, kind of what you shared that, that you highlighted, you know, in the in the short essay that you wrote, you you thought it was important to highlight um, this Afro Latino perspective. So I would love if you don't mind, and I'm just going to ask a question, like if you could share a little I'm more fine. about why you why that was important to you to highlight, because unfortunately, I don't often hear that.
3: Yeah, one of the reasons it was very important for me to highlight that is because I have an Afro Peruvian dad. So my dad is um, definitely mestizo colored, um, darker skinned. My mom is not. My mom, you can definitely probably think that she's European, if anything, because she's very, very light skinned. And that's because my mom, also from her mom's side, um, her mom's, my grandmom, is Peruvian from her mom's side, but Italian from her dad's side. So I have Italian roots through my mom, but then through my father, I have African roots, but also indigenous roots. So for me, it was very important for me to highlight that because I know what it was for me to be in a school system that was predominantly, uh, my neighborhood was predominantly Polish. And I'll never forget being questioned when my father would pick me up of like, oh, are you sure this is your father? I'm like, yeah, this is my father. And over the years, I did see certain things happen to my father that were a little bit unusual. I didn't know as a kid, of course, that's racism, right? Because as well, my parents wanted me to assimilate the American system. And also, I would say my own, you know, white passiveness as a Latina. He had, he mentioned to me, you know, that at times it was harder for him. You know, he had to always like, Defend himself, or fight for his honor, or sometimes assimilate. You know, certain remarks of him as an immigrant. You know, of course, getting like low-paying jobs, right, in construction, and being treated um, or maltreated, should I say, because you know he is being paid off the books. And so, hearing that from my father, and then also when I learned more about as well my. African roots in Peruvian history and in our music and everything, I know that there are so many that don't even know our own history as Latin Americans, where all of us, none of us are any sort of pure breed. All of us have a mixture of African roots because the African diaspora, all of it came to Latin America, Central America, South America, everything. So we all have that. And I feel like there's been an erasure complex as well in the Latin community of not identifying as our African roots. And to me, I'm absolutely in complete disagreement with that because we are denying a part of ourselves and our history. And that's literally in our roots, in our generations, in our ancestors. And if people want to be white passing to each his own, but I know for me and my family and where I've been upbring, I am not going to stand for that. So even when the ro- the rising of um of course of protests from last year on black lives matter, I actually had a very distinct opportunity that I didn't even think I would even get, where I remember waiting for a few of our congregants, because we were part of the Pre-March Act, um, protest, peaceful protest, um, as you know, Christian clergy and just um us the Christian community also having a peaceful protest um saying Black Lives Matter. And I'll never forget, because I was waiting for a congregants in a certain corner in 4th Avenue in Brooklyn. And a reporter from Telemundo came to me and asked me, hey, you know, are you Latina? Are you, can you speak Spanish? I was like, yeah. Would you be okay in being interviewed and talking about this event? And I was like, yeah, sure. So, so there, you know, by, the, by God's grace, I didn't even think this would happen. Um, they interviewed me quickly of why was I there? What was the purpose of the event? And what do I have to say? to our community. And I was honest in saying, like, hey, we need to also stand up for this too, because we are also affected from this. Black Lives Matter is for our lives too, because we also mm-hmm. are Black. I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm pretty sure they probably cut that part a little bit. <laughs> to be honest. Um, oh, a God. lot of people started texting me after a certain hour because they aired it. And my phone is like blowing up. And then my sister's like, oh my gosh, check your phone. And I was like, what happened? And that's where many people were just like shouting me out like Millie thank you so much for saying that and stuff like that my parents too they were like oh my gosh like people from our church were telling us you're just you're you're no your daughter's famous and I'm like oh. heck I'm like that was like probably like 30 seconds of my life you know what I mean it's super <laughs> funny um but I noticed that like I have to speak up because like no one else will you know and I'm, I was like well God you gave me the opportunity I've been speaking up for you know immigrant rights might well, as well as I speak up for my brother his sister's We're also suffering every single day, just like I am. You know, and it's even worse. I would say in the ways too, because like you know, always be. I can't imagine that because I have my shadows moments as well too. I'm not all the time am I always like in courageous mode or anything like it? But I can't imagine always fearing for your life every single moment. You're coming. You're driving right, or um, just doing. You know, different simple tasks because of the color of your skin. You know, so it's just things like this that I I knew for me it was a non like it was a no brainer. I had to stand up for it.
0: I, I so appreciate you sharing that because I think um I think that the church has has a lot of work to do on so many different fronts racially right like yes. there's obviously the the there's obviously challenges um between um black black and white church members. There are definitely things that we're we're grappling with on how we how we treat and ignore oftentimes our asian brothers and sisters but i also think like again as a haitian and knowing the history between haiti and the and the dr which is often where this comes up but there is a lot of healing to be done as to like how do other people of color treat black people right and like you being honest and open and and recognizing that i mean does healing <laughs> i think is is really encouraging for me because i do hope that that would be something that is also, like, more, um, you know, recognized and, like, shared and spoken about openly between, you know, brothers and sisters of color um, within the church as well.
3: Yeah, and I'm in agreement with you, Gabrielle, and the reason I'm saying this is I'll never forget that day um, in June, Pray March Act, uh, checking my phone, and one of my friends that I wanted to check in with her because I know this is very true to her heart, um, being African-American, and and I told her, hey, I'm you know, I'm just want to check with, with you. How are you? Are you okay? And and then just sharing this moment. And she was so honest with me and saying, Thank you so much for being there, and thank you so much for speaking. And there she told me this. I apologize, Millie, that I never was there
0: mm-hmm.
3: for you and mm-hmm. your in as well in what you advocate for and what you stand for. And I want to learn more. Let me just say that for me. Uh like it was such a, a great, like you said, a healing moment for me, but then also a moment of like, oh gosh, like there's so much that with that, right, more conversation that needs to be done. And I believe that, you know, and I think it starts with us, like with each other, you know, and just talking and just being honest in the inter-ethnic conflict we have with each other too, with, I'll be honest, it's just a, a candy down of our generational biases and discrimination that we've been taught from our family of origins of our parents so I think it's been such a healing experience for me as well um, from African-American community too in in knowing we always have had alliances but sometimes we've just never spoken about it because of our own I would say unspoken differences but yet very similarities that we have as just power um, people um, and how do we Embrace that for the next, I'm not sure, in a sense of like advocacy mutually for each other in each other's causes, and then also helping other communities who don't know or who are just standing up now, right? Um, as well. So, I think for me, I also am in agreement with you of us needing so much inter ethnic healing between black and brown communities, yeah, to then go ahead and engage and help other communities too. Um, there's so much there, and and I hope and that's one of the reasons why I love so much what I do as well in um and being on the ground in ministry with others and having these talks and knowing it's okay to be not okay right mm-hmm. it's okay as well to have a mental health checkup because if, I don't know what I would do without my therapist to be honest with you <laughs> you know for sure like she knows all my stories um so it's it's great and and I need that right um but then also yeah it's okay for us to have these conflicts um of like. Of talking with each other's communities because it's healthy,
0: and I'm glad you mentioned that. And sorry, I will let the host do the rest of their work. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I think I, I think that's so true. That like you're right. Like on the flip side, like have have Black Christians really been speaking up about immigration issues all the time? Like I think that that's a real that's a real question. And um, and DocuBlack has. I have a sweatshirt that they say that says immigration is a Black issue, right? Like. And it shouldn't just be because there are black immigrants. You're right. It should be because, you know, our brothers and sisters are also impacted in, in such dramatic ways. And that should shape us. That should shape our theology. That should shape what we care about. Um, so thank you. And thank you for that call, because I think that's so important.
3: No, thank you, Gabrielle, for mentioning that as well, because I am with you absolutely hundred percent. And the reason I say this is now discuss this, now let us while our, our <laughs> for sure our hosts I'll continue the conversation which is, I'll never forget going to a celebration for for DACA, but then also the Jose Peralta Law with the CUNY um, group that one of my friends was part of. And she's a DACA recipient, but she's not Latina. She is um, definitely um, Jamaican descent. And I'll never forget her invitation. And she was honest with me and saying, I want you to come with me and you'll see why. Because I know you're part of like, activism but you also understand what I mean and I did like if it wasn't for me to translating certain things that mind you they were celebrating and they still started celebrating in like completely Spanish poetry at times or saying certain Spanish things I felt so bad for my Mm friends and that is something that I believe we need to do better in immigration activism in putting every single person's story there if yes, if you have like someone that's doing pure Spanish poetry, you better believe you have someone translating that poetry, and then yeah. having others, you know, speak about it. You know, like there's other, like you said, you know, Latino um, black and everything. Having others part of that lineup because immigration, we're we're so divided, but yet we have to be united because it's all of us. It's not just Latinos and speaking in Spanish and advocacy. It's our african brothers is our asian brothers right and so on and so forth and i think for me this was my first kind of i would say disheartening in seeing an activism and i'm like why are we doing this if we're so better united
2: yeah and i'll just say uh you guys don't have to apologize for uh <laughs> for talking to each other this is no. this is an egalitarian space and um, yes, i'm just i love it <laughs> I'm just grateful to uh, to be privy to the richness of your your conversation.
1: Right, exactly. We the two of us could just shut up, and this would be a great show. Absolutely,
2: Bye. absolutely. We'll just let you host yourselves next time. We'll just open the door. Right, exactly. <laughs>
0: That's you, so funny.
2: You can have our house.
0: We'll be guest guest co-hosts. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be great.
2: Um, yeah, so I guess you both shared in the beginning when you talked about your stories you shared some really beautiful experiences of how the church supported you both and your families, but also you've kind of touched on throughout the course of this interview. And I know you just shared a bit about this just now, Gabrielle, about the work that the church still needs to do around these issues. And, and Millie, this is also something you touched on quite poignantly in, in your essay in keeping the faith. And so In reflecting on kind of some of the the pain and rejection that you both have also experienced in in your journeys with the church as you've been walking through this, could you both share a little bit about what keeps you going, um, both, you know, as believers who are actively involved in your church communities and in your advocacy, despite those difficult things?
0: Sure. Um, I think – so I guess that it's twofold. I think. I mean, I think that the main thing that that keeps me going, I think, spiritually, is one knowing that, like, my interest or passion from these things, like, actually, is comes from the Lord, right? Like that God is actually the one who is the God of the foreigner and of the fatherless and of the oppressed. And seeing that, you know, seeing Him be that in my life, but also seeing, like, and getting a sense of his heart, whether it's through scripture um, or just, you know, movements and having to remind myself, when, and Si knows this all too well, like that God cares about all of these issues and these people f- way more than I ever can. and And that he is at work even, you know, even over the last few years and how challenging that was. Like God is still at work and and I really appreciate Millie's reminder that like He is sovereign and above all of these systems, um, and is still working even um, in the brokenness. And so I, I think for me that is like I actually have to like keep that really <laughs> close to not get um, completely disillusioned and and despondent, really. Um, but then I also think like I you know. I can just say that, like, you know, I have a few text chains of my friends who, whether it's like my prayer and sangria group, whether we're meeting virtually or in person, where we're just sharing and like lamenting and being angry together about the state of the world and about not even like only the broad things, but like, I'm asking them to, you know, pray about my cases or pray about like the immigration or human rights policies that I'm, Mm -hmm. um, you know, engaged in with work. And and for me, that's that, that brings a level of cohesion, right. Where it's not like, you know, just my, my church, like on Sundays and, you know, not thinking about the Bible through the lens of everything that's going on, but bringing those things together. Um, is that, I don't, I don't know. That's the only way I can do this, <laughs> um, to be honest. And, um, and the fact that God suffers with us, right. Like that, the the cross means that, that those who are suffering are never alone. and I don't know
3: that for me, that's like, that's the foundation. Um, But I'll let you go ahead, Millie. Yeah, I think I'm with you too, Gabrielle. I have to say my faith, you know, and just seeing that God is the God who sees us all and he loves us. He absolutely loves and adores each one of us, both the oppressed and the oppressor. And the reason I'm saying this too, is I have seen that there is so much hope in just listening into those at times, of course, when we have the strength and capacity and yes, complete agency to do so, too, in listening to those that have these rhetorics. And the reason I say this is I heard many stories at times from our congregants that they weren't exposed to people other than white until like later in their lives, maybe like the last year of high school or so. And that to me is a big thing. And the reason is being here, a New York City kid pretty much all my life, I've been exposed to multicultural every, t- every time, <laughs> every single time I step out of my, my door, right? So it's just things like this that I'm like, wow, there is so much power and vulnerability and also dismantling, the, I would say, the the ignorance, right? Instead of what it looks mm-hmm. like for, for immigrants to have an immigrant life and experience or for them just to know that it's not as cookie cutter way that they hear in the media, right? The system of immigration is so complicated. No immigration case is actually the same. I'm not sure if I'm always called to those spaces all the time, for sure, of like what it looks like to, let me tell you my story, right? Um, So here, dismantle your um your biases or discrimination. But one thing has been as well, my strength has been community and where I have like really amazing like best friends, who are from just different communities, whether Latina, African-American, Asian, high advocates, you know, for just my story and just who I am as well. And also we're all single. So we also always, you know, grabbing a fun singleness stories for sure too over (laughs) a, a great margarita. Um. Fine. So it's been great to have that spaces just to be be myself and have a safe space. I can just grieve and lament. I've also have found amazing friends um in the undocumented community who are DACA recipients. There's a few I turn to whenever you know things we hear things going wrong. But ah, uh, it's always a of fresh, fresh air just checking in with them. We have our own like documented jokes and things like that too, uh, because we know each other's experiences, right? So I think it's awesome to be in a place where I don't have to translate myself. I can just be. And when it comes to Christian spaces too, and just being honest, you know, in my experience and coming in, there's this is where I definitely understand God giving me, I would say, an Esther moment, and who I am and everything He's created me to be from my roots, from my father, from roots, from my mom my you know being a first generation latina being undocumented and a clergy in church planting where i'll be honest and saying that it's it's more it's completely highlighted with um, a lot of white superiority at times and i've been able to speak in certain instances as well you know so there's where i i praise god in being able to, to speak for our communities and the courage i receive from as well, like my mentors, my senior pastor Corey. Like honestly, that man believes both beyond for me for sure. Than I think I personally see in certain professional development. But he's just encouraged me and to continue advocating. We really talk about everything, you know. And him as well, his experience of what it looks like to be black in America too, has been so great in learning from him as well. So I think this is what gives me the courage. Um,
1: this is been uh, a really incredible conversation. I really appreciate you two coming on here. It was it was genuinely an honor to sit here and just listen to the two of you interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, um, is there anything before we go that the two of you want to plug anywhere that people can follow you, Gabrielle?
0: I think there's some orgs that you guys should follow if you want to learn more about um, immigration, Black immigrants and how immigration justice is racial justice and vice versa. Um, I've mentioned Black. I've mentioned Baji, Black Alliance of Just Immigration. Um, there's also Haitian Bridge Alliance, which I'm a huge fan of, Haitian Women for Haitian Refugees, um, which is also an amazing org. Um, but yeah, uh, I usually tweet about stuff related to Haiti and or um, human rights um, and or randomness. And Sai and I sometimes get into um, Twitter spats if you're interested in that. Um, <laughs> but my my Twitter handle is Gapalon1, I think. Um, yeah, yep. that's it.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Millie, how about you?
3: I love it. I, I think I'm going to do the same thing Gabrielle did, which is definitely mention a few, like, um, immigration organizations have been very helpful for me, and just also just being part of their space has been very healing. Which is New York State Youth Leadership Council, um. So the NYSYL, um, actually is undocumented and stuff, and it's really awesome to have been part of their spaces. They also gave us spaces to heal and lament as we were all waiting for the decision of the Supreme Court last year for DACA. And the other one, too, that's been other two, I would say, that have been really awesome is the New York Immigration Coalition and and New Sanctuary Coalition as well. But in regards to myself, so my platform where I give hope for like definitely for advocacy, for justice, for for immigrants and just saying certain times of like just hope, because I feel like we need so much hope in this world. In everything we've gone through, I would—I feel like all of us also are healing from being traumatized for four years with so much rhetoric and hurts. Real talk. We, just being honest, it really feels that way. And that's why, for me, that's a whole other tangent I will get into. But hearing certain times, certain people from certain communities say, so we're are, where are Latinos in this. And I'm like, we're still trying to recover from being traumatized mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. four years, you know, because I was asked that question. Um, and trust me I'm still healing from it so I would have to say the other platform for sure to look into for me is Hoping Greatly so I have that as a platform in Instagram in, um, in Twitter I'm not so active in Twitter and Facebook but I'm always active in Instagram so Hoping Greatly.
1: Millie, Gabrielle thank you so much for being here today
3: thanks for having us. Yes thank you so much <laughs> for having me and Gabrielle so amazing to hear from you too
0: really great to talk to you
3: Thanks so much for listening.
2: As a reminder, you can subscribe to our blog at ktfpress.com. Follow us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at KTF Press. And subscribe to the podcast on whatever player you prefer. Also, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at shake dust at ktfpress.com with questions written or recorded as a voice memo. And maybe we'll play your voice memo on a future episode. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra, and our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see you next week.
1: So We've heard about Gabrielle's prayer and sangria group. She mentioned that briefly. And then Millie briefly mentioned her sort of singleness, lamentation, and margaritas.
0: Um, That's a good name. I I
1: love that. I think think maybe if we just, like, combine these two groups, I feel like that would be, like, really powerful in some
0: way.